one of the comments you often get is rich people don't need help with their money. Um, and if you're a young doctor earning $150,000, $200,000 a year, you're golden. You know, you, you don't need help. And that, it couldn't be further from the, from the truth. The other comment I heard early on is, but all the banks want those customers and they, you know, they're very well served by those customers. And they aren't. They're being gouged by the big brand banks. Listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Digital Growth Journeys series, where James Robert uncovers and explores some of the industry's biggest digital marketing and sales stories of success. Let's get into the show. Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay and welcome to the 52nd episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Banking on Digital Growth journey series and I'm excited to welcome Ben Sapit to the show. Ben is the founder and CEO of Unify Money and he has such a great story to tell with a lot of insights, a lot of inspiration. I'm inspired by the work that he is doing and, and I hope that you, dear listener, are as well so that you can apply these insights on your own journey of digital growth. So thank you very much for joining me today, Ben. Thank you, James. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. You know, when... <sighs> We've already had such a great conversation before we hit the record button, but when when you reflect back on this great century of 2020, looking ahead into 2021, what has you most energized and excited right now? So I'm really excited about where we are in our product journey. I've been working on this for so many years we started designing it out two years ago, and now 80% of the functionality is there. It's a broad vision. It's a, it, you know, we're, we're designing a fully featured money management portal, super app really in current terminology. And it's taken such a long time to get here. And uh, we're finally at the point where I can actually now use my Unify Money app to manage my money. And that's, that's to see something go from concept to reality is, is um, super exciting. And um, we're, we're a few weeks from going into our open enrollment. You know, we, we're not having a big launch event or launch moment. It's much more of a rolling process, but we're going to be starting to invite um, customers outside of our beta as of uh, about 10 days from now. So that's, yeah, super exciting. Well, let's talk about that because I think like this is a journey. You've, you mentioned it's two years. It, it, it was conceived on a napkin and the work you're doing at Unify, I want to start, why is this work important? Let's start there. Let's start with, with why is this important for you? So I, I think there's different levels. I mean, there's, there's, there's important on a personal level. Um, and I, I just reached a point in my career, in my life, where I had more ideas that I felt needed to be implemented than I was finding companies who shared that vision or, or shared the sort of radical nature of that vision. And I tried, you know, I, I talked to a bunch of people. And my assumption was I would take this vision of a, a money management super app for high earning young professionals. And it seems so obvious to me that there was a need and a clear opportunity, but everyone kept on launching neobanks with debit cards for underbanked and, and mass market consumers. 
So yeah, the, you know, there was a sort of personal moment of, well, if no one else is going to do it, I have to do it myself. I've never been a founder before. I'm almost 50. So apparently I'm part of diversity in, in startups because I'm an older founder. Great. <laughs> and then, you know, why is it important? I, you know, in my view for, for, for the greater economy and greater society. And, you know, one of the comments you often get is rich people don't need help with their money. And if you're a young doctor earning $150,000, $200,000 a year, you're golden. You know, you, you don't need help. And that, it couldn't be further from the, from the truth. The other, the other comment I heard early on is, but all the banks want those customers and they, you know, they're very well served by those customers. And they aren't. They're being gouged by the big brand banks. And if you look at the, the proportion of people, a proportion of millennials who are actually investing their money, it's less than a third. And the younger you get below 30, it's even it's an even smaller smaller proportion. The vast majority of millennials are keeping their money in cash in one form or another. And that money is just dying. There's not a deposit interest rate in the market that's that's higher than inflation. The net of that is that hundreds of billions of dollars in, in earnings and interest that should be going to this entire community. And, and it's the millennials are now the biggest economic community in the market, and yet hundreds of billions of dollars is being lost to them every single year. We calculated it was, I can't remember what it was now, several trillion dollars over their lifetime because they're not managing their money well. And then we need to ask the question, why are they not managing the money optimally? Surely it's in their best interest. These are intelligent, well-educated people, highly motivated people. And the answer is, well, A, it's really, really hard. And secondly, they're in busy, stressful jobs with a whole bunch of things happening all at the same time. And hard and complex and the industry not making it easy, busy people living their lives is a recipe whereby if no one's holding a gun to your head and saying, you need to sort out your finances, you, you leave it for a day, a week, a month, a year, and suddenly you're, you're 35, you're 40, and your 401k isn't maxed out, you don't have an emergency fund, something might happen, or you get married, buy a house, and you find yourself needing you know, or seeking financial security, and you've lost 15 or 20 years the most important, from an investment point of view, in terms of, of uh, compound growth, the most important years of your investing life, and they just went they just went off, and, and you lost them, and, and they're not coming back. Yeah, you know, hearing you talk, a couple of things that I take away from that. Number one, you're never too old to start something new. I think one of the greatest lessons for me, from what I've learned from, from Dan Sullivan, is always make your future greater than your past and the work that you're doing and the positioning and the communication and and your go-to-market to to me seems to be very what i would call purpose driven in fact purpose is at the heart of what i teach which is the digital growth blueprint because you know we we can sit here and and maybe you could talk more about this of the problems when it comes to because you're focused on this millennial high earning niche market, which we'll come back to that here in a moment. But when you look at the problems, you you mentioned the complexities that they're facing. And one of the words that we used before was cognitive load. How is that impacting the decisions, even the habits that they have? Because to your point, you know, people don't think, you know, people with money have money problems, but that's not the case, obviously. When you look at the millennial landscape in this post-COVID world, what are some of the biggest problems that you're seeing that, you, that you're focused on addressing? So if you look at the sins committed by mass affluent consumers in, in personal finance, they, they are almost all overwhelmingly sins of omission, not commission. It's what they don't do that hurts them. 
they leave money sitting in a, a low or no interest bearing deposit account. They don't maximize the rewards and benefits from their credit card spend. They don't dollar cost average. These are all acts of omission, not commission. And a large part of the reason is, is the cognitive load, that how complex and hard it is to make informed good decisions in this market. And there's, there's a host of research that shows that when people have too much cognitive load, they end up doing nothing. And doing nothing is benefiting the big brand banks. And you know the biggest lie ever told, and maybe the most successful marketing campaign ever, that banking is free. It's not free. It's just the costs are hidden. And we should all be asking ourselves, if Chase keeps on year after year announcing record profits, and yet banking is free, who's paying? And the answer is us. And we're paying because, in part, the big brand banks are not economically incentivized to make saving and investing easy. They've, they've solved the problem of payments because it's in their economic benefit to make payments as easy as possible. And they know that the easier something is, the more people do of it which is why Uber got rid of the payment functionality. Amazon Go got rid of the payment functionality. Amazon OneClick, these are all designed to make paying for stuff easy. And this, the statistics are very, very clear. The easier it is to pay for stuff, the more we buy. If you had $100 in cash versus $100 on a credit card versus $100 on, I don't know, some sort of layaway, you're always gonna, the, the further removed you are from the physical act of handing over cash, the more you're gonna buy. And we know that, and the banks know that. Now, the banks have no economic incentive to make saving and investing easy. In fact, they have the opposite. Because if you go and put your deposits into a Vanguard fund and pay 0.04% on those, Chase is earning nothing on that. So they have absolutely no economic incentive to make it easy for you. So what we're trying to do is solve the problem of cognitive load by doing what Uber did. We are taking away the effort so that our customers, by default and automatically, model best practices in personal financial management. And we hope that a highest, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a decent proportion of the 15 million odd affluent millennials in, in, in the US market that respond and, and gravitate towards that idea. Well, simplicity is really the only way to escape complexity and by its inherent nature, money is extremely complex and a lot of that is rooted in environment, uh, childhood upbringing, behaviors, what they learn, what they think. And so when you look at not only the challenges, but on the opposite side of the coin, it's the opportunities. What are the opportunities? And, and one of them that you shared with me was almost a forcing function to help people establish new behaviors and new habits through the platform. That's correct. Yeah. So we, um, th there's, there's two things that we're doing well, in fact, there's a whole number of things, but the two things that tend to stand out that people notice is, number one, we're the only bank in the world with a comedy sketch team, and we're very proud of that, and that there's a good reason, good thinking behind that, whether it works or not is another thing. And the second is that we force our customers to save and invest. We force them to adopt the behavior that they should be doing, whether they like it or not. Now, obviously, if they don't like it, they won't be a Unified Money customer, but um, we require our customers, we have a minimum contribution. It's only $25, but we have a minimum contribution into the investment fund each month. We recommend it's 100 to 200. It can be as high as they want. But if you're a Unify Money customer, you are dollar cost averaging. You are investing in a customized, risk-appropriate, low-cost diversified robo-fund. And we hope that by forcing that function, people adopt it. People, you know, the vast majority of millennials are not investing, even fewer below 30. So if you take that first step and that we, we assist and, and, and 
create that forcing function so they are investing, then we hope that over time they will get the confidence, they will learn by looking and seeing how that balance grows over time. And if they gravitate towards managing their own equity investments, if they, if they gravitate towards crypto or gold or whatever else, um, then that's fantastic. But that first step is the hardest, and that's yes. the step that we make mandatory. It's almost like you know, you, you go to the gym and you get your gym membership, and that's step one. But then step two to really see some transformation with health for the vast majority of people is to get the gym membership it's, plus the trainer. It's consistency as well. Yes. Yeah. You, you need to, um, you know, the the 30% of people who or millennials who invest um, are not necessarily investing in a very optimal way. You know, they invest in January because it's the new year and they want to get their finance ordered. They invest when Bitcoin's high or when... Tesla, you know, Tesla is the great stock of the moment. And that's great fun. And, and there's no there's a role for that. But um, investing should be super boring, at least the vast majority of the time. And it's and it's very repetitive. And as human beings, we tend to gravitate towards things that are new and exciting and different and it's a shiny and, object. Yeah, it's, it's like investing is is not designed to be well suited to our cognitive behavior. And you know, the way we think and the way we do. So we are not good at doing complex, repetitive tasks. Technology is great at doing complex, repetitive tasks. So we're simply using technology and some product design to try and make it as easy as possible. Well, we say, you know, saving and investing as easy as paying for an Uber. Yeah. Well, investing, I mean, you, you, it's another type of a journey. And it's it's like running a marathon. You know, you you start that marathon training program. And unless you're you've got an app to either A, hold you accountable and tell you what you need to do next, or B, you're running with a group, it's very hard to keep that long-term mindset once you get in, and I've run multiple marathons, because once you're getting up to 15, 20, 22 miles before you actually have the race, you can just get tired mentally and say, you know what, ah, it's just not worth it, and you fall back on old behaviors. One of the so things- There's a very well-known psychological phenomenon that we're really very powerless to prevent when we buy things, we get an instant hit. Dopamine. And it's a dopamine hit. It's like, oh, I won. I got something. It's great. And it's exciting. It doesn't last very long, but that's why it creates this cycle of sort of dependency and this cycle of reinforcement. You, you keep on buying things on Amazon because it's just feeling better and better and better. And the only way to retain that, and, and by the way, this is exactly the same thing as happens in, in drugs and alcohol abuse. We get used to that high. We want to keep that high going, which is how people end up spending too much. But when the payoff is maybe 30 or 40 years in the future, there is literally no dopamine hit in saving and investing. So we are already up against it psychologically and with our natural you know, biases, human biases, that we are predicated to be buying more than we are saving and investing. And if you recognize that, that's the first step to managing that behavior and overcoming our own psychological limitations. So awareness. Yeah, it's awareness, and and then it's it's doing something about it because you know, awareness, awareness declines over time as well. And there is a there's a, another very well known, very well researched psychological phenomenon whereby the further out a reward is, the more we discount it. Mm. So you know, when you're 20 and you're smoking because it look makes you look cool and in front of the girls, that's a very short term sort of viewpoint. When you're 80, and and you can tell someone, listen, you, you'll you'll live 10 years longer if you stop smoking. And they're like, I don't care, it's too far in the future. What's the payoff, right? Yeah, if you're 80 years old and someone offers you 10 years 
more life. You're going to take that and give anything for it. And, and that's the same phenomenon is that it's, and, and we know this from pensions, you know, how do you sell pensions to 25 year olds? The government makes them do it because there's no amount of work you can do to get enough people to save and invest when they're young because they're invincible and they can't imagine a future where they're going to need that money. And so that, you know, we, we are fighting human nature and we need to use every tool we can to overcome it. Yeah. So awareness, acceptance, and then action, automation. accountability, and automation. Automation, I think automation is like, it's the accountability piece of it because the automation is going to hold you accountable to whatever it is that you're doing if you set it, because it's almost like set it and forget it at that point too. It, that's exactly right. And, you know, I wish there was an equivalent in health and fitness whereby I sign up to go to the gym and my body just gets healthier without me doing anything. And unfortunately, that's not the case, but it is the case in money management. Once you've set it up, it can run forever. And, you know, we, we, we advocate keeping an eye on your, on your uh, investments and your wealth. But even if you don't, like, you know, we, we, we've designed an app whereby the app is actually just there as a tool. It's there as a utility. The, the product is not the app. The product is helping people effortlessly grow and protect their wealth over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I want to touch on that, this idea of health and fitness. You know, I mean, we see the rise of, of Peloton and their growth and the, they've simplified fitness. They've brought the community into the home. They've got the accountabilities with the instructors and the, and the community and all of the content. How has your background given you, let's say, a different perspective than the traditional banker? And because I know that you've spent time at Fitbit, the global head of, of business development for FitPay and Samsung and, and, and Visa. What opportunities do you see, speaking of fitness, to align a person's financial well-being with their physical well-being or their, their financial well-being with their mental? Because it's all interconnected. Yeah, there's, a, there's actually a lot of research that shows that people's, that people's psychology and behavior around health and fitness is very similar to how they think about personal finance. I'd say from my perspective, my, my, my background academically is in psychology. I'm not an engineer. And I think a lot of what I, what I observe in the market is a lot of fintech founders are engineers, and they approach the problem of behavior from a very engineering mindset. And they, they, they look to rationalize and bring logic to what is ultimately a psychological problem. So we talked about this before you switched on the mic, but I'll, I'll say it again. If you were solving for, for people's lack of budgeting, a rational approach would be, well, let's build a better budgeting tool. And to me, that's like saying, well, the, the way we're gonna solve for more people going to the gym is we're gonna build better gyms. And the problem is not lack of infrastructure, the problem is lack of motivation. So what we need to solve for is the lack of motivation not the lack of infrastructure. And, th and that's really our approach is to solve for the, the, the motivational issues. And one of the things I learned at Fitbit, which I think Fitbit really did, did amazingly well, is, is create, they managed to abstract fitness away from being about, you know, being too personal. And the 10,000 step challenge that they popularized was actually created by a Japanese scientist. Um, Fitbit just sort of grabbed it as this nominal number. And that gave you an opportunity to understand your personal level of fitness in a, in a very vague, but nevertheless important way. You know, am I, am I hitting my 10,000 step target? And that was very, very powerful. And then they created all sorts of, you know, behavioral uh, rewards and, and ways of engaging, but it was really centered on that idea of extrapolating away from your very personal information to something that everybody could talk about. 10,000 steps, did you hit it? Are you 20,000 steps, et cetera, et cetera. We had the same thinking that 
one of the big differences between health and fitness and finance is that pe people tend to be very open about talking about health and fitness. You can walk into any bar in the world and say, did you see the game last night? And you can have a conversation. Most people can't ask their spouse what they spent their credit card on last month. It's, it's, you know, it's deeply ingrained in us that we don't share that information. So people are very closed around personal finance, but they're very open around sport and fitness. So that, that's why the number one sponsor of all sports in the world are banks. There's, there's, there's barely a sporting event which is not sponsored by someone in financial services or a bank. And they, they know that this is, you know, they know that this is an easier way to engage with people than, than personal finance. So we were thinking, how do we, how do we maybe create a platform for future engagement in a similar way? And what is the information that we, it, it, we, we came across this discovery, which is the information we all need, which is really about how well is my money working for me in the same way as, you know, am I hitting, how, how fit am I? How financially fit am I? There really is no way of measuring that without giving away information people aren't prepared to give. And the banks don't help us because they're not interested in telling us how much interest we earn because it's two cents. So one of the primary differences between what our app and most financial apps is the first information you see at the top of the page is we tell you how much money your money earned for you. And you can track that. You can look into it in detail, how much money came from cashback, how much money came from interest, and how much money came from dividends. And we calculated that most people in our customer segment should be hitting around $100 to $200, definitely over $100 of passive income from those three sources every month. And if you're under $100, you need, you know, it's worth looking at why. Is it because you're not saving enough? Is it because you don't have the right dividend mix or whatever it might be? But, you know, we allow that to be interrogated. We encourage it to be interrogated. And it's the one piece of information you need to know about how financially fit you are. But it's the one piece of information no financial institution currently gives you. Technology has transformed our world, and digital has changed the way consumers shop for and buy financial services forever. Now, consumers make purchase decisions long before they walk into a branch, if they walk into a branch at all. But your financial brand still wants to grow loans and deposits. We get it. Digital growth can feel confusing, frustrating, and overwhelming for any financial brand marketing and sales leader. But it doesn't have to, because James Robert wrote the book that guides you every step of the way along your digital growth journey. Visit www.digitalgrowth.com to get a preview of his best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside, you'll find a strategic marketing manifesto that was written to transform financial brands, and it is packed full of practical and proven insights you can start using today to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's about visualizing progress. I love the analogy of the 10,000 steps because I can tell you when when our schools shut down because of COVID, my wife and I, we have four kids and she's she was at home with, with the kids helping them with school. And she was saying 10,000 steps. She was crushing like 20,000 steps a day just in the house, walking between all of them and on their computers and laptops. But I like that you're visualizing the progress in your, and that helps to make somewhat of the, the intangible tangible. So exactly the, right. 
Yeah, and and it and it does provide coming back to your point some of that dopamine hit like you know what i'm i'm moving down this journey i'm, I'm on the right it. path yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going and I, and speaking of making the intangible tangible and, and and getting a little bit more into your background too from looking at this from a psychological perspective and not an engineering perspective because they're two vastly different ways of looking at the world i like how you've created a commemorative five ounce coin to celebrate the launch of unify money because I think that this coin is a way it, it attracted me because it makes the, the the intangible tangible, the intangible of digital tangible. And and so I have to ask, what's the idea behind the coin and what's the story of the turtle on the coin? Uh, well, I can talk about the turtle. So the turtle has become our slightly unofficial mascot. And the reason is that we, we rejected the convention of affluent debit and credit cards being made of metal. Mm. It's like, you know, at what point did we decide that we should be buying financial instruments based on, based on their weight? It seems indicative of a lot of the, to be polite, a lot of the ways the industry seeks to confuse consumers or deflect consumers from the real value of their products. So this is, a, you know, credit cards completely commoditized. And yet uh, some people are paying $550 for a quote unquote metal card. There's even a card you see quite a lot of advertising now where people are advertising how heavy that card is compared to others. And again, why do we think that buying, choosing your credit card based on its weight is a sensible thing to do? It's so far from the utility of the product and the way we should be thinking of financial products as tools for our benefit. And that's indicative of a lot of the marketing around financial services. So we completely rejected that. And we, 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 we were working with some industry vendors, and we saw the opportunity to be the first to use recovered ocean plastic, ocean-bound plastic from a company called CPI. Wow. So our, our cards are made up of plastic picked off beaches and, and rivers and, and turned into credit cards. We also partner with the Ocean Foundation so that every time the cards are used, we donate to the Ocean Foundation. And we, we did that because it seemed like a good thing to be, to be doing. You know, why why not use ocean recovered plastic when there is a choice to do it as opposed to brand new plastic and, and to have some small impact on the environment as well as tie in with a, with an NGO that we really like what they do. So the symbol of the recovered ocean plastic card from CPI is a, is a little turtle and that became our unofficial symbol. And the reason we're doing the coin is um, because I, I personally like the cognitive dissonance between having a very digital product and then linking it to, you know, silver gold coins, which are I think like 3000 years old and having a token, a physical token, a representation of the product. And again, you know, I, I looked at other fintechs launching and they were launching with waitlist programs where you could get five places above the other person because you introduced someone to the waitlist and, and all of this sort of, digital fakery and i wanted to give our customers real value for real work and well, well i love fun. yeah and i loved how you said that this could even be a family heirloom or a collectible item i i, I just to me i i caught up i picked up on that and that's why I, I wanted to ask about both the 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 coin and the turtle and i saw the turtle and now that you've made that connection for me uh i saw that with your cards being made from 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 recovered plastic in the ocean and that's just another perspective of this idea of of being purpose driven 
as a brand. And to that point, I want to come back because I think purpose really aligns so well with this idea of personas and, and niche market segments. And, and I know that you have a very focused niche market segment around high income professionals, doctors, vet, veterinarians, dentists, pharmacists, lawyers, architect. It takes a lot of courage because it's it's very different than say what a traditional financial brand would do. Think about because you know a lot of them you know they want to be all things to all people. But you said no, we're going to focus on this particular niche market. Number one, why go niche? Number two, how has niching down helped in product development, messaging, positioning, etc.? So if you look at the challenger or digital bank market in the US today, there's about 90 different brands, almost all of whom are focused on the same customer segment with more or less the same product. So the same customer segment is the underbanked, the unbanked, the Chimes, the Barrows, the Monzos, the Revoluts, the N26s, and, and, and 85 other brands. And almost nobody, and certainly not in any focused way, looking at the 15 million high earning millennials in the market and these are this is a, you know th- th- these consumers are they're a very particular profile you know they're high earning yes they tend to have very high debt so the average debt student debt in the market is 30000 the average doctor is 260000 they have no assets they live in very expensive places like new york san francisco seattle austin los angeles and they have very high expenses and and they're they're highly taxed so they're, they're quite a difficult customer group to lend money to, for example, buying a house, buying a car. They have very busy, stressful lives, and they overwhelmingly bank with the big brand banks. And the big brand banks love that because the average consumer earning more than $160,000 a year has 42000 sitting in a checking account, probably with Bank of America or Chase, earning 0.01% interest. And it will sit there and grow for the next 15, 16 years, which is the average amount of time people spend with a with a primary bank account. And that is serving the consumer very, very poorly indeed. It's not helping them to build and grow their wealth, quite the opposite. But because it's hidden, because it's 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 not physically taking money out of your pocket, it's it's sort of taking it from source, we don't feel the loss in the same way. So that's why I say our biggest competitor is not the big brand banks. Our biggest competitor is consumer inertia. That's the psychological barrier that we need to overcome in consumers' minds and for them to recognize that a hidden loss is still a loss and has a very real and material impact on their life over time, their financial life over time. You're helping shine light into maybe the unknown crevices to help the unaware become aware of what some of these opportunities might be that they aren't even realizing that they're missing. For To, to your point, to bring it all back together, these are sins of omission. And because you have a niche market, and, and something you mentioned before too, having a comedy sketch team, which, which, which I found very interesting, this has given you the opportunity to think differently, to position differently. Um, and, and, and I want to, to move this to a moment around influencer marketing. This was a subject that Jay Palter and I discussed earlier in episode 51. And Jay and I were discussing it from more of the B2B side, a commercial banker play, bank serving the SMB space. But from an influencer marketing direction, you're taking the consumer approach. And I know that this was in some, something that was inspired by STEP. So how did STEP inspire this thinking? And then what is the approach with influencer marketing to humanize this brand uh, for, yeah. for you guys? So, so the reason we use comedy, really satire, 
is because you know there is there it's fun and and it's different and there's two there's two reasons actually the first is that we recognize of the 15 million affluent millennials in the US at least half of them are never going to move their bank and it doesn't matter what you say or do they're just not going to do it so the people who are naturally going to be interested in us and come and 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 our first 50 100,000 customers are going to be natural contrarians these are going to be people who are independent of mind and action so we have permission to be different and appeal to those natural contrarians by being a contrarian brand. So for example, we wrote a blog post saying 10 reasons why you should never move your bank because natural contrarians don't do what they're told. They do the opposite of what they're told. So we, we switched it round. We wrote another one, which was 10 reasons never to use a neobank. And you know, you just don't see Chase or, or City taking that type of tongue in cheek approach. We cannot compete with, with the big brand banks in, in conventional marketing. Chase alone spends $2.6 billion a year. That's more than Apple spends globally on marketing. And they have to do that because they have an undifferentiated product that delivers very, very poor value for money. The top 10 big brand banks spend over $15 billion. Sorry, yeah. You yeah, I'm going to pause you on that. I just want to, I want to reiterate that point for the dear listener. Chase spends $2.6 billion per year. Every year in the US. That's more than assets for the vast majority of community financial brands. So just let that sink in for a minute. Imagine what better use that money could be put to. Absolutely. Um, so not only do we have permission to be different, I, I feel that we have to be different. So why do we use comedy or satire? Um, because it's very easy to, you know, there's a fine line between insult and education. So I could tell someone with a Chase Sapphire Reserve card that that's a very poor decision on their part. It's, it's a very expensive card. It's, it's generally, I think on a good proportion of its customers, it's, it's affluent signaling rather than anything else. It's become a rite of passage for young executives when they hit the 100, 150,000 income level because all their friends have got Chase Sapphire Reserve, so they go get it. Two or three years later, most of them dump it because they realize it didn't change their life for a better and they didn't get, you know, it made no real difference. They were still just buying for stuff. And particularly in COVID, you're seeing droves of people leave those affluent travel cards because they realize the points are worthless. No one sees their metal card when they're shopping online. And the whole value <laughs> proposition is, is really a, a house of cards. So you know, it's easy to insult someone. And particularly affluent, well-educated, successful people don't like to be told they're doing something wrong. It's like, you know, and the worst are bankers or people in financial services who tend to have terrible personal finances, by the way, but they won't be told because they, they perceive themselves as being pretty competent and expert. So instead, we use satire to sow the seeds of doubt that maybe they should be looking at things slightly differently. We created a, a, about nine satirical videos looking at, frankly, the very bizarre relationship that we have with money and big brand banks. And then we actually ended up working with Jason Nash, a comedian based in L.A., really funny guy, really professional, really talented. The, the team that was doing our videos knew him and had worked with him. So we, we did like a spoof video interview with him and a young millennial talking about the way he manages his finance. And we really positioned his, him as the person who hadn't done it very well. And you didn't want to grow up to be like Jason Nash. So the step and the Charlie D'Amelio thing was a bit tongue in cheek. But we talked about it as, you know, who's really taking financial advice from a 16-year-old multimillionaire? Is that really relevant for you? Instead, we used a middle-aged guy in LA to give financial advice, which is sort of like the dad figure for the uh, the vlog squad um, yes. that, that he's a participant in with, with Toddy Smith and others. 
Um, yeah, and and I love I love that approach. And what you said, I think, is key. There's a fine line between insult and education. But what we're trying to do with this content, with the satirical content, is to sow the seeds of doubt because a person's desire to transform has to be greater than their desire to change. So if anything, you're just making people either a wonder or b wake up to is there a better way to managing my money. And I, and I really, really like that approach as, as, as we wrap up today's conversation and it's been a great one. I, I really appreciate the time, the insights, the ideas and the inspirations that you've shared. We're looking ahead whole new year, 2021. What is one piece of advice or recommendation that you would have for others? Let's just say in, in just the banking space at large to maximize their digital growth potential, because you, you are on a digital growth journey already, naturally. But what can others do? Because COVID has been the forcing function for this industry to start thinking digital first and and humanizing digital experiences. But what's one piece of advice or recommendation that you could just make for others on their digital growth journey? I think it's about giving back to the, the FinTech founder community. There's a really vibrant FinTech founder community who are overwhelmingly supportive full of the most amazing insights, professional, personal experiences, and incredibly helpful. And, you know, I think it's, it's dependent upon all of us who benefit from that community to give back as much as we can. And that's how we build better products. Our entire model of what we're building at Unify Money is all dependent upon the partners we work with, companies like UMB, companies like Visa, companies like RailsBank, I2C, uh, Drive Wealth. Gemini, you know, the, the, there's a list of 20, 30 companies, um, Hummingbird uh, for, for compliance as a service, Socure, Unit 21, you know, I can, and, and we've talked to the CEOs and the, and the senior execs of all of these companies. And we ended up working with companies because we, we found people who, who wanted our vision to be successful, who had relevant experience, who could be helpful. And I'm hoping I get to the point where maybe I can help others so that's my 2021 ambition is to is to give more back to the fintech founding community than I than I have taken to date. Uh, I love that perspective, and and for those who do want to just connect with you to to continue the conversation that we've started today, what's the best way for them to reach out and say hello, Ben? Uh, LinkedIn. I'm I'm pretty uh, pretty public on LinkedIn, and and I do my best to respond to every and any LinkedIn request. Absolutely. Well, thank you once again, Ben, for joining me. And as always, be well, do good, and wash your hands. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay. Like what you hear? Tell a friend about the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and subscribe while you're there. To get even more practical and proven insights, visit www.digitalgrowth.com to grab a preview of James Robert's best-selling book, Banking on Digital Growth, or order a copy right now for you and your team from Amazon. Inside you'll find a strategic marketing and sales blueprint framed around 12 key areas of focus that empower you to confidently generate 10 times more loans and deposits. Until next time, be well and do good.